Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at the Farnborough Air Show, about 30 miles southwest of London, world's leading air force with leaders from uh, governments around the world, military leaders, industry executives, as well as aircraft from all around the world, including some fighter jets that are going to be making noise over our heads as we do this. Our coverage here on the Royal Air Force's centenary year is sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Farnborough International, and we're honored to have with us Eric Tuning, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy. That's right. Wow, now, small name's title. Gonna, the name's going to change with the reorg, um, so we're going to industrial policy. You're just going to go down and just back to the good old days. Back to the, back to the future. Yeah. Back, back to the future. Excellent. Well done. Well done. Um, now, let me uh, ask you, Eric, you guys, uh, the president uh, in July signed in, last July signed an executive order saying, hey, I want a national uh, defense or national industrial strategy. Um, you guys prepared your work. You submitted it in April. You were good on the homework and, and, and put it in. Um, and everybody's waiting to see what this 13806 report is going to look like. I know that you guys have briefed elements of this all over town to sort of pave the, the way. Talk to us about what some of the macro factors are, the drivers are, and the thinking is, because in a world where there's a lot of talk about America first and by America, uh, there, there are some concerns out there about some of the messages that, that may be delivered in this. Talk to us a little bit about what some of the macro themes we're going to see when this report comes out, and should we expect to see it soon? Because every, every couple of weeks, no. it's, it's yeah, soon, yeah. it's soon, it's soon. Right, no, I appreciate it. So um, it was an interagency effort, a great collaboration with the Office of um, Manufacturing and Trade Policy at the White House, as well as our interagency colleagues. Uh, as you mentioned, it's been submitted and is currently going through interagency review. Uh, what you'll see is a uh, couple of things, right? So we started off with the frame that what are the macro forces driving risk within our industrial base? And we'll talk about five, right? So we'll talk about budget stability, um, with actually the budget instability, rather. Uh, the general decline of U.S. manufacturing capability and capacity. Uh, we'll talk about industrial policies for competitor states, specifically China. We'll talk about our own buying behavior and how our own buying behavior drives risk within the industrial base. And then we'll talk about the erosion of U.S. STEM and trade skills. Um, after that broad conversation, we'll then discuss how these macro forces drive to what I call specific risk archetypes within the industrial base, and then provide examples of those archetypes as well as recommendations. Now, there'll be a classified and unclassified version of the report. The unclassified version will go into detail around the specific actions we're going to take to address the issues that the report has identified. Then classified report uh, won't go into detail around the recommendations. Um, do whatever is produced ultimately, is it going to have dollars that are associated with it? Because the United States can build lots of sovereign capabilities if it wants to invest the cost to do so. We've gone to a global just-in-time um, network, if you will, ecosystem, if you will, in part to benefit from the best technologies from around the world, but also to try to do it a little bit more cheaply. Yeah. When the report comes out, is it going to make some specific recommendations that, hey, we're going to need five, 10, 25 billion a year that we need to invest, for example. Chromali uh, can, can dig rare earths out of the ground, right. but we have to send them to Japan right. to be processed and, and sent back here. What are some of the muscle movements we may see when the report finally does come out? Yeah. And what, what goes with it? Sure, of course. Um, so there are Broadly speaking, three sets of recommendations in the report. There's recommendations around different legislation, new authorities, or changes to existing authority. There are, uh, recommendations around changes to existing DOD policy, and then there's investments. Uh, those investments can take a couple of forms. They could be incremental, um, and they can be reuse of current dollars. Uh, the incremental investments were incorporated into their proposal submissions for the fiscal year 20 budget, as well as the foundations for some of which were in the 19 budget. Um, 
what about, from your standpoint, what's, some of our uh, friends and allies are particularly concerned and feel that they're already starting to get pushback from the Pentagon, whether they're British suppliers, whether they're Italian uh, and other countries around the world, that they, they're getting pressure to get pushed off of some DOD programs. Hmm. Is that uh, by design? Is that by plan? Is that a sense? Is it a worry and a fear? Is there anything in the strategy that's going to be pushing our allies and partners off of some key uh, programs uh, that are mutually beneficial? Absolutely not. So, as Secretary Mattis has said repeatedly, one of the department's main priorities is strengthening alliances and partnerships. Um, as I have said, I think of our industrial base as force structure, uh, and just like our warfighters need to be interoperable, our industrial base needs to be as well. Um, in fact, at the end of Farnborough here, we're going to have a meeting with our INTIB partner nations to go through the industrial base report. They're going to share their reports. We're going to talk about areas of mutual collaboration. Um, so, do you see this feeding into some sort of an alliance effort in order to build sort of to address some of these challenges on an alliance-wide basis? I'd like to get it to the place where we could do that. And as you know, with the INTIB structure, governance is still one of the things we're working to develop. Uh, there are a couple of pilot programs that we're working on, but eventually we'd like to get to the point where issues where we have common concern we can work together on and help address. Um, if you, um, one of the challenges that you hear is the need for sort of a broader, broader approach, a different approach to, for example, innovation. Um, Anytime there's something innovative, um, it, you, you saw this with uh, Airbus and Boeing, right? Yeah. There were two new competitors to it. Bombardier was moving up the food chain, as was Embraer. Right. And so what did they do? The duopoly bought them. And so yeah. there's that concern that an industry is behaving how industries behave uh, historically. And I want to go to an M&A question uh, with you in a moment on that. But I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard senior military leaders say, look, I'm buying what I'm buying because I'm forced to buy it either by the Hill or the guys who supply it. And that's natural behavior. but it creates a status quo environment at a time of dynamic change when sure. you want to accelerate things. How do you work this from an industrial strategy yeah. standpoint, an industrial policy standpoint, that you can actually incentivize a contractor to be like, look man, we, we just got to let this go. We, this is not what we need to do at this time. You can brute force it as, as uh, Bob Gates did when he did the big cancellations of right. F-22 and, and, and uh, future combat system, et cetera. What's, what's the right way to do this? Industry is behaving the way industry behaves, but it may not sync necessarily with what it is you need at this point. How do you do this lift, which will require the breaking potentially of a lot of China, if you want to get to where you need to be in terms of where some of these threats are going to be sure. in a few years? Um, well, the benefit of having done the work around the national defense strategy is it gives us prioritization around what are the missions, and what does the force modernization roadmap need to look like, right? So if we use that as a guide, one of the, one of the things it tells us is we need to be leveraging the full national security innovation base of the United States. The innovation comes from a variety of sectors. It can come from our legacy defense um, industrial base. It can also come from emerging defense industrial providers as well. And so the way we think about that problem is do we have the right contracting capability to put the incentives across that national security innovation base. So are we incented to work with our heritage folks as well as our ability to rapidly work with the emerging technology providers? Um, as you um, look at merger and acquisition policy, which is, you know, M&A activity is yeah. on the rise. Uh, it's on the rise in the services uh, field as it is in almost everything else. Sure. Kevin DeSanto was on and, and talked about their first M&A survey and we went through the aerospace defense yep. and, and government services part of things. but. Talk to us a little bit about how your approach may have to change if you're putting a defense industrial overlay on some of your policy making. So from a CFIUS standpoint, I know CFIUS is yeah. going to get tougher, right. but we've had a lot of foreign defense companies buy into the U.S. market and become trusted suppliers yeah. uh, within our ecosystem. 
Um, how, how does that defense industrial layer on an M&A review change how you may look at things? Yeah, and as you know, there are two primary M&A um, uh, regimes that our office supports. The first is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is an interagency committee for which the DOD is one of the voting members. Uh, currently, we're going through FIRMA, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, one of the Secretary's priorities. Um, we asked for it to be attached to the NDAA because we're concerned specifically around the levels of uh, Chinese investment in certain areas of our technology base and the potential for investment-driven technology transfer. And so when you think about CFIUS, think of that as the first order national security test that we apply to foreign direct investment in the U.S. We want foreign direct investment, foreign direct investment's appropriate, we just want to make sure the right foreign direct investment's occurring and we need a national security review to make sure if there is an issue we can put in place the appropriate mitigations. Um, in terms of domestic review, right, that primarily occurs through Hart Scott Rodino, FTC and DOJ run that process. The department is an important voice as a customer for certain transactions, um, but FTC and DOJ are in the lead and we review each case on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and, and part of that is, of course, a higher sensitivity to the Chinese commercial investment and acquisition in the United States, particularly for, for dual use, which has uh, become a sensitivity. Well, but I think just to that point, though, Sisyphus, right, reviews things on sort of what's the threat, what's the vulnerability, and the consequence. Right. And I think it's very important to notify that, you know, we're concerned around investments in emerging technology fields that may not be supporting defense programs right now, right. but could very easily evolve to that point. Because right. China has a Silicon Valley and they're investing in our Silicon Valley pretty pretty significantly, uh, and, and, and a big concern on that. From a defense acquisition, from a defense industrial policy standpoint, um, every decision the department makes is a defense industrial policy right. statement. Yeah. Um, and if you look at some major programs that are bearing down the road, for example, we followed very, very closely and full disclosure, Leonardo DRS is a sponsor and they're one of the competitors with their T-100 aircraft in the TX competition. And you can argue that all three of the planes have significant amounts of foreign DNA in them. Yeah. Whether it's the Boeing aircraft with Saab, whether it's uh, Lockheed partnered by with Korea Aerospace Industries. Um, the question that a lot of folks are asking, and, and I've heard more talk about it at this show, especially in a Buy America context, that the Boeing aircraft is one that's likely to emerge a leader because it scratches a specific defense industrial edge. Lockheed is your leading fighter provider. They're, you know, if you look at Boeing, uh, you don't know how much long the 15 line's going to be around. You don't know how long, much longer the 18 line's going to be around. That will be valuable to keep skill sets and capabilities in, right. in St. Louis. And so it's interesting to me how many people have mentioned that to me. Even if they feel proud about their own product they're forwarding, that conversation is happening. At some point, does the department need to get a lot more honest in having that kind of a conversation very early in a program and say, look, man, I'm sorry, I'd love to have a broader competition on this, however, I kind of have to go with a guy who's scratching my itch. I mean, at, at that, do we need to get to, because once upon a time, we did used to do that kind of yeah. thing. I, so obviously I'm not going to talk about any specific programs. Particularly yeah. ones yes, I, I, I just want to yeah. make this abundantly clear. Yeah. I am not yeah. trying yeah. to get yeah. you to yeah. do yeah. that. Clear. I'm not talking about those things. I think there's two important points. One is, and I, I say this as, you know, as someone who served um, during the Iraq war, we get very important capability from our allies. And I think about MRAP technology is a good example, right? MRAP technology did not evolve in the United States, but when we needed it, our allies were there for it and helped us produce it. So first and foremost, we're going to make sure the U.S. and allied warfighters equipped with the capabilities they need to do their mission. That's our sacred obligation. I also think it's important for us to evolve past a model where, um, in essence, industrial policy has been acquisition decisions and, how, what, and how, what we bought and how we bought it. And I think it's important for us to recognize that in the current geoeconomic context, we have to make sure we're making the right investments, 
to support our industrial base, for what capabilities we know we're going to have to have to support the modernization roadmap going forward, and that may require looking across individual programmatic decisions. Uh, there is yeah. a big focus on mobilization. Uh, Chairman Dunford, one of yep. his favorite books is Freedom's Forge, yeah. uh, which is required reading for everybody, and it's a fantastic story, if slightly misleading, because I think it wasn't just two heroic industrialists against the system, right. the, the whole ecosystem came together uh, to make that happen. Uh, and you and I participated in an event uh, where, where mobilization was, was the focal point on it. Um, talk to us a little bit about how we do this, because in that era and in that age, the United States, can, you know, from the ore we mined to the steel we smelted, yeah. everything was within the borders of the United States. Now right. it's a just-in-time global yep. ecosystem we live in. Yep. How, how do you do a mobilization, and, and, and also time scales for conflict are expected to be right. compressed. Right. What, what, what do you, what's the right way to think about mobilization in the era that we're in right now, because everybody talks about that book and there seems to be powerful nostalgia, yeah. and there's no way to avoid not being proud about 18,000 right, B-24s right. built yeah, in, in three years. Yeah. And, and Bob Stevens is fond of always noting, you know, World War II was over in three years, eight months, right. and we developed an atom bomb during right, that period. Right. It also you took know. about 2% of GDP, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yes, yes it did, and 25% of the nation's electric power right. was going to it, and hey, yeah. nobody knew about it. Right. So, uh, you know, what, what, what's the right way to think about it? What are, how are department leaders thinking about it? Because I know it's a topic of conversation. I know it's on Deputy Secretary Shanahan's mind. I know it's on Secretary Mattis's mind, uh, yours, and, yeah. and a number of others in the department. What's what's the right thinking yeah, in yeah, order sure. to, to mobilize so, the nation if we need the, um, something like that? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, I, I don't think we should fall into a trap where we automatically assume mobilization is bending metal and steel. Because as you know, warfare today is multi-domain and we may need to mobilize ourselves in things um, on the cyber context in ways that we currently haven't. I think more broadly, as you think about mobilization, we also need to recognize the fact that we're in a global industrial base and that any large mobilization is going to require the support of our allies and partners. That's where things like the Defense Production Act authorities under Title I and our ability to exercise our, our, our security supply agreements that are allies become very important so that when we do need to surge, we have the capability there. Uh, we're undertaking some discrete modeling to see where certain parts of our industrial base may need additional capacity based on certain war fighting scenarios. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a team effort. Uh, in much the same way as it was a team effort in the 1940s. Um, one last question though, are you concerned at all, and one of the things I've been hearing from U.S. industry in particular is this concern that the transatlantic trade war, uh, tra trade war um, some of the rhetoric uh, that the president has engaged in, is, is at a time when allies are spending more money, they may decide not to spend it with the United States, but spend it at home. If you looked at the FCAS announcement today, it was pretty much to reinvigorate a sovereign UK aerospace capability. Mm -hmm. So in that atmosphere, is there any concern that some of our allies and partners at a time when we need them most may decide to go their own way if they're going to be spending more money? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One, we want our allies to have healthy, robust industrial bases because that makes ours stronger. And as they pursue programs like that, I'm sure there'll be an opportunity for U.S. industry to participate. Just like large U.S. programs like the F-35, there's an opportunity for um, allies to participate in the programs as well. I also think, too, it's important that we put the current trade Discussion in the current context, right? So the Section 232 investigations into steel and aluminum were primarily driven by concerns about Chinese overcapacity and what the Chinese government's doing, which is a concern that we have along with our allies, and we're, we're working, willing to work with our allies on that issue. Similarly, the trade actions around the Section 301 investigation into Chinese intellectual property theft was driven by concerns around what China's doing around stealing IP also an area of concern that we have with our allies. And so I think it's important as we talk about that to address that 
we also have a fair number of common concerns underlying those agreements, and we want to work with our allies in addressing them. Eric Tuning, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. <laughs> Thanks so very much, yeah. it's always a treat. Sure, <laughs> pleasure, Vago.